Hey everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of My First Sketch. I'm Josh Hyam. If you haven't done so already, it's a podcast. Subscribe to it. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon. It's all over the place, wherever you get your podcasts. But it would be really cool if you rate five stars and leave a review on whatever platform you choose. You can like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash myfirstsketch. Head to myfirstsketch.com where I'll post any of the videos that we talk about on today's episode. Any questions, thoughts, recommendations, feel free to email me at josh at myfirstsketch.com and I'll get back to you as soon as I can, unless it goes in a spam folder. Then it'll take a little bit longer. First things first, Sketchybater, our sketch comedy open mic, returns to Zoom this Friday night, April 29th, 10 p.m. in the East, 7 in the West. You can find more details at sketchybater.com or on Facebook if you search for Sketchybater. Although I'm going to warn you, I saw some surprising stuff the last time I searched for Sketchybater on Facebook. We continue to look ahead to Montreal Sketchfest, and I continue to be jealous of everyone going, because I'll be stuck in Philly. Today's guest is Alia Razul, currently a member of the TIDA Collective, based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. TIDA Collective is doing shows in Ottawa, at Montreal Sketchfest, and in Peterborough within the next month. So you can check out their website at titacollective.com for all their information. Alia's first sketch is a song parody called 12 Dates. And we actually have live performance audio taken from the Noche Buena Holiday Fam Jam at the shop. Credit to Phil Casa for the footage. The actual video is posted on myfirstsketch.com in the video section. It's already there, I promise. So let's go to the sketch. First date we went on, my new love said to me, it's not racist, you're being sensitive. <laughs> on the second date we went on, my new love said to me, do you celebrate Christmas? It's not racist, you're being sensitive. <laughs> on the third date we went on, my new love said to me, what's your real accent? Do you celebrate Christmas? It's not racist, you're being sensitive. <laughs>
Alia. Hi. All right. So tell me about this idea. Tell me where this uh, 12 Dates song comes from. So 12 Dates, obviously a parody of 12 Days of Christmas. <laughs> Wrote it very close to the holidays. Um, it's the idea. Uh, it's about microaggressions, right? And yeah. like how they kind of compound. So I really liked, you know, in 12 Days of Christmas, you always just keep adding on. And that's sort of how microaggressions work. And that's why they get, it becomes like exhausting as like, well, in this specific sketch, like the point of view is like the point of view of a woman of color dating in an interracial relationship where that's not the only place you'll you'll experience microaggressions as a, a, a person of color. Um, but it does happen. <laughs> and, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been my personal experience and, and it adds up and it gets more and more and more exhausting. So that's like the basic premise or point of view of that sketch. Was there a moment where you're like, ah, 12 days of Christmas, let's like put these two things together. Like, let's talk about like the, the volume of like the microaggressions, you know, in relation to the 12, like, was there like that aha moment of that? Yeah, you know what? That's so funny because <laughs> this is quite an old sketch. So I'm like trying to remember its conception, essentially. Um, I wrote this song uh, for a group that I was in called Fusion, which was probably one of the f- first um, all BIPOC sketch troops in Toronto at the time. Um, and so a lot of the point of view that we try to present are, you know, like trying to really tackle like racialized points of view, because that's that's sort of <laughs> why, why we came together. And uh, I guess so for me, I was already going into like that brainstorming process with that in mind. Um, I think because it's the holidays, it was just in the ether, like mm. the song. I knew that for our holiday show, I wanted to do a parody of a carol. So I just basically did racialized point of view plus parody of a carol. And it just kind of um, just kind of clicked, you know, as as a lot of sketches do, just sort of come up. <laughs> Yeah, the, that idea definitely wouldn't work with like Little Town of Bethlehem or Oh Come All You Faithful as well as it does with 12 Days of Christmas. Like, because I mean, I, and I know there's always that that article every year where they're like, oh, let's talk about the economics of the 12 Days of Christmas and like how expensive or whatever this is. That whole gift set is a nightmare. Like, <laughs> even, <laughs> yeah. Even back in the day when the song was written, I'm sure that was awful. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, it's like, why wow. would you do that to somebody? Like, <laughs> there's a, a really funny uh, Norm Macdonald um, audio sketch that he put he put out an album like 15 years ago where he talks about like his girlfriend had been giving him. He's like, yeah, you got me a lot of birds. I live in a one bedroom apartment with <laughs> birds. Like, it's just so silly and like in the past I haven't thought about it like there's been definitely moments recently where even as a white dude like I can hear someone say something I'm like oh like now come on like and then yeah you know, I, I can feel that mounting like yeah like yeah so 
so even if, if I'm being frustrated by it and I'm probably like I can only imagine because and I don't want to say it's a generational thing but the fact that it is like a lot of it about like the parent or the new love or yeah. you know that extra family member like it, it feels you know spot on yeah I mean it's also like I guess I'm in a different place now as well with um you know thinking about anti-oppression since I wrote this but I still think it rings true that so the part that goes um that's just how my dad is it kind of like speaks to how people uh uphold the status quo um and that's actually where you know like where the most challenging work is right like everyone can be a social justice warrior as they say on the internet share your articles but really the work is like what what kind of conversations are you having with uncle joe over the dinner table that's the toughest because like i mean i think people are more likely i don't know and you know what depend everyone has different families but that's really where a lot of folks depend can have a lot of impact you know, so with their parents, you know, depending on that relationship. Um, but, but it's when family members kind of uphold or don't try to have that um, hard conversation. So then it's their um, marginalized friends that have to have that conversation. <laughs> and that's when it gets really exhausting. Um, I think microaggressions are just so like, um, difficult and painful because it's like I have to do this like 42 question set just to have just to be a normal person in a space mm-hmm. and eventually eventually like we all get older too like we only have so much energy and I'm like man I just want to like be in this space be silly be who I am without having to give you like a like a TED talk on not just my experience but like the experience of people who not even who just looks like me but people who don't look like you it's it's a it's a huge it's like I don't want to do homework just (laughs) just to have dinner just pay for my my, just pay for my meal (laughs) I came here for free food (laughs) you know at this point I'm like I'm like oh my I might as well be like a tenured professor somewhere (laughs) how many lectures I've given it's like (laughs) my friend and I have the joke that I'm like I refuse to go back into grad school I'm gonna do everything I can to get like an honorary PhD that's how it's gonna go because I've done the work for free (laughs) give me my PhD (laughs) all right you heard it McMaster give her uh, yeah McMaster give it (laughs) I that was the first Canadian college I could think of in my head I will take an honorary PhD from anywhere because I will talk about it so hard like hey you know what Dr. Ali Rasool here PhD in comedy studies because that's obviously what I would study (laughs) um so, yeah, I, yeah. I guess the whole like lecturing thing when you just want to have like a, a a decent dinner. Yeah, I ugh, I can't I can't even fathom it. Well, it's also just like I want to talk about movies <laughs> and like <laughs> I want to talk about the ultimatum. I don't want to talk about my background. I know my background. There's nothing in that conversation for me. 
like, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like that. Okay. Like, you know, the feeling when, as soon as you tell someone you're a comedian, they're like, well, tell me a joke. Yeah. It's like that. Right. For me anyway, that's how I, it's like, bef- you're oh, like, what do you do? I'm a comedian. Okay. Give us your five minute set that, and you already know that they're going to a heckle you the whole time. Be be weird about it because it's not the ideal situation to tell a five minute set like that oh, feeling right like that feeling of being like uh i'm gonna deliver it because i was demanded to but i know it's gonna feel so bad for me and they're not gonna laugh and i'm gonna walk away from this like <laughs> not having a great time so that's how it is like sometimes like being asked to uh you know speak to the things that you don't necessarily yeah, like, I, this I was it. not yeah this was not in the agenda <laughs> had a new coworker recently and someone and he like came to me one day he's like so here you do comedy i was like who told you that that's not supposed to be like <laughs> like that was a secret how dare you how dare these people <laughs> yeah i'm yeah, yeah so tell me a joke <laughs> yeah that's, that's not what I do. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Oh. Um, all right. So let's go back to the beginning because this is a comedy podcast. What were you into growing up? What made you laugh? Oh, my gosh. I love, like, the most absurd things. Um, I don't know if anyone's seen the movie Kung Pao, which I don't know if that would fly <laughs> Is that now. the, um... But, yeah, basically... Was it, like, Enter the Fist or something? Can, like... Yeah, so I it's, forget what's his name. I yeah, forget. It's, it's it's not Odin Kirk. It's not Bob. Like it's like Oda Kirk or something. Yeah, it's something. Steve. Steve, I think. Steve yeah. Steve Oda Kirk. Um, because he he worked with Jim Carrey for a while. Right. Yeah. 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 So and then, her, and then he did like Enter the Fist, uh, Kung Pao. Yeah. Um, the the thumb movies. There's a couple like thumb movies where like like <laughs> all the actors were like. It was, what i didn't what i didn't know that what a great discovery i'm gonna go check yeah I'll, I'll send you the email oh that's I'll, amazing I, it, it's like oh what was it called it was like it was a star wars parody but they were all like thumb people oh that's so good i love star wars i love thumbs that's great <laughs> so okay so i so kung pao and again i don't know i don't know if that would fly now but i really loved it like growing up because a it was like a kung fu movie and i i'm a huge fan of jackie chan like i've seen every single jackie chan movie even the ones where he's like one second in the movie but in like the poster the main he's like the main guy in the posters i've seen them all so i really love that and i so uh, for those who haven't seen it it's basically he i think um cut and edit edited like three three old like kung fu movies um and then, uh, what do you call it? Like maybe added new, new, new scenes to create a whole new story. And he would like dub over um, the characters. And it was just, it's just such a ridiculous, ridiculous um, movie. And, oh, it's so hard to explain to you. But anyway, it's no, like a- No, I, I totally understand that. Cause I, well, I, I know the movie, like- Yeah. I remember- I haven't seen it, but I, I definitely remember it like on the shelves of like all the like, video rental posters and stuff. I didn't know that that's what it was where he recut from yeah other footage. Like I thought it was just white dude comedy kung fu, kung fu movie. Like, he like superimposed himself into <laughs> into the yeah into the film 
as like the protagonist and I you know I like I was an inclusion director at Bad Dog and like obviously <laughs> I'm not the spokesperson of all like anti-oppression and like <laughs> and it would be weird if someone did that now but at the time like I think it was also the first time where I was like oh he's not like the Asian people in this film are not the butt of the joke like mm-hmm. he was he there's a bit of a clown turn like he's he's a clown so he's he's usually the butt of the joke um but yeah anyway it's a great movie you should check it out and then we can have a conversation <laughs> about the anti-oppression of it i'm happy happy to, happy to answer any questions happy to be called out so let me know <laughs> yeah I, I do wonder how like what this movie would feel like today yeah like 20 years later yeah i th- i don't think it would fly i don't think it would, i think people some people still have like patience for uh for things being of their time and yeah. um i think of that time it was like there was a lot of bad stuff like around that time so i think of that time um i have a little bit i can like be a bit lenient but if it came out today i would probably be the first person to be like what get out of here with that <laughs> um so but, like was that really one of the, like, the big movies of your childhood or like teenhood it, it was so like me and my like me and my brothers know all of the dialogue <laughs> like we've seen it so many times <laughs> um i think that's it too like uh um a big part of like my comedy or like my taste for comedy is also uh you know gr- yeah with my brothers like we all have similar humor mm-hmm. um and so we just sort of like love like the weirdest like conan o'brien for example i think conan o'brien has gone a little mainstream but in his late late night was it like the late late night show i don't remember just one late late night oh it just but it was very late it was like the last uh, yeah twelve thirty or whatever it was yeah. yeah 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 like so he got away with like the weirdest stuff and that's like he had uh was it in the year 3000 like that 2000 oh 2000 no it it wasn't even that far into the future oh that's so wild so (laughs) and yeah so i love that stuff and i don't know if anyone's ever seen like space ghost coast to coast Mm -hmm. (laughs) so space ghost coast to coast is like like this hannah it's like this hannah barbera is it adult swim yeah um situations where space ghost is like the late night host and his band leader is i forget who his nemesis is like the the cockroach guy no the cricket guy no locust anyway all right so i'll admit that i am not an adult swim person like (laughs) i i didn't have cable growing up so it didn't hit me at that moment where it probably would have like so by the time i got cable i started watching stuff i was like it was like and it was very dominated by Tim and Eric, and I don't understand Tim and Eric. <laughs> like, they're not funny to me. <laughs> so, I so think all like, that Adult Swim thing is kind of yeah. lost on me for the most part. Well, I think, like, as a millennial, like, I really grew up with really weird Cartoon Network things like Courage the Cowardly Dog and mm. Ed, Ed and Eddie, which are so high concept in comedy sometimes. But growing up, like that is what I absorbed. Just like very bizarre, strange narratives with really like surprising kind of comedy. And I think for me, like just I think that speaks 
spoke to me because I've always felt like such a weirdo. So, you know, I'm Filipino, but like I am um, like my dad is Muslim Filipino, which is like a f- like five percent of the population of the Philippines is Muslim. And then my mom. So the Philippines is mostly Catholic, like a lot of and also a lot of the things that you see uh, in the media is like very representative of the experience of like a Catholic Filipino. Yeah. So. So my mom is like, you know, a Protestant Christian. So I'm like the child of like two very like minority kinds of Filipino who like uh, created me. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, it's like a subsection of this re- of these two, I call it like just two weirdos. My parents are very weird. And then you take that weirdo and then you raise it in the Middle East. <laughs> So I've always felt like an outsider. So Wait, I almost raised in the Middle East. Yeah, I grew up in. Um, well, I lived in Saudi Arabia for a little bit, and then I spent the rest of my childhood in Dubai before I actually moved to Canada to study to for university. So, yeah, I don't know. I think like just weirdness and being an outsider really speaks to me. So I think the more absurd, the more I feel at home. Can, can we talk about timeline of like when you would have graduated? When you would have moved to canada for university then like oh you oh you want to age myself okay okay i should age okay okay so <laughs> i moved uh, i moved here to I'm, I'm just trying to connect the dots <laughs> of kung pao living in the middle east you know like all that stuff like yeah yeah, yeah none yeah. of that makes sense to me no okay well i mean okay so um dubai is like a port city right so there's just a lot of expatriates there like i grew up in um like in like the school that i went to like had it was like a very diverse school like 60 nationalities Mm -hmm. and in terms of media we got it all which is so cool so like i grew up with you know british canadian u.s filipino indian arabic like media so it was like a real mix of things. Don't get me wrong. It's still like pretty much prod- predominantly like Paramount and HBO and things, right? So I really grew up, I did grow up with like SNL, um, Mad TV, um, but I also, you know, but on equal footing, like like all of the BBC stuff, like Monty Python, um, I feel like when you, when, when you live, or at least my experience so far of Canada is like, this is like our local humor and this is like foreign BBC. But for us, everything is foreign. Therefore, yeah. everything is like kind of local too. Um, yeah, and and like uh, one of our favorite things to do as a family was go um, go to like Blockbuster, our, our version of Blockbuster. And so I think we just sort of came across this DVD of Kung Pao and just <laughs> never returned it. Yeah, I just like, I mean, the whole thing about Kung Pao is just interesting to me because I don't think it was a very successful movie. Oh, it's a cult. It's a cult classic. And I I, I wouldn't even have said that, like, <laughs> to go that far. Hey. Because <laughs> I think you're the first person I've talked to <laughs> it's like, I that's love brought it. up Kung Pao <laughs> in all the time I've spent comedy. <laughs> so. Fair enough. Well, I mean, it's just again, like maybe, maybe I don't know. I actually never thought about this. That maybe I just really liked it because you know, having grown up 
watching all of the like Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan movies and I was like oh here's a comedy one although all of Jackie Chan's movies are are comedy but this one is like an absurdly comedy one so I think that really gravitated towards that so there's definitely that sentimental connection and it's funny like you know like if you grow up with it sometimes like that's what you tend to or maybe the opposite but for me that was even even growing up with you know those kung fu movies and you know the Jackie Chan's and everything like seeing that a, a take on it like the, the comedy take on it is going to hold on to you like yeah I mean I I saw Austin Powers you know it came out like 98-ish and I probably saw it on, on on VHS first I didn't see it in the theaters I didn't understand to the extent that he parodied the James Bond movies I knew it was a parody of the James Bond movies but I'd never seen one so I was like okay this is funny on its own and then when I started dipping into the James Bond, I was like, oh, there's that shot. There's that shot. There's that shot. Like where you see all the references and what he's doing. So yeah, I, yeah, I mean, Kung Kao totally makes sense as someone, you know, if you loved those martial arts movies, like, yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, yeah. Yeah. I love, I love comedy for that. Like how it can be so layered. So I'm, I'm part of a group called and I'm sorry if I'm jumping <laughs> your questions, but I'm part of a group called the Tita Collective. And a lot of our work is uh, very focused on like the narratives of the Philippine diaspora. So, you know, we start our show, like we have like a one hour sketch review, um, a la Second City style. Uh, we start our show with a song being like, hey, um, watching all of these shows there are a lot of references that we didn't know but now it's going to happen to you so but but the the great thing about like comedy is like you can layer so many things into it that there's going to be something for everyone and I will say like one of the very surprising and cool things because we allow ourselves to be so specific and really dig deep into our culture that we can bring on really specific references. Um, Like after we debuted that show two years ago, people will always come back to us and like not even Filipinos, they'd be like, oh my gosh, like my Filipinos best friend's house always was that vibe (laughs) or, or like, yeah, like, my you know like everyone is more filipino than you think is was my takeaway but also other immigrant like diasporic communities were like i didn't realize how similar um uh, our experiences were you know so that was like a really fascinating thing and then if you're someone who's just like who just likes good comedy then there's that layer like we have song and dance and we have like all of the beats that you can understand so yeah yeah, I do love sketch comedy specifically that way. They're just layers, man. It's deep. <laughs> so, like, even with like Steve Odekirk being, and I have to imagine that if he's cutting that movie from other movies and like putting himself into it, there is a a feel of sketch comedy. Like, because I I think um, Steve Martin did a similar movie um, in the '80s called Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid, mm. where he was like in the same way Odekirk's doing with the martial arts movies, he's doing like the old detective noir movies mm-hmm. where he's playing a main character and like all the, like the, the stars from the forties are in like, I'm not going to name cause I'm totally going <laughs> to screw up names of actors from the forties, but like it does feel like a sketch comedy because he's interacting with this one thing. So what 
and you mentioned you know in dubai like being having everything available to you what's your first introduction to sketch comedy then so it's interesting because uh the philippines has a pretty like long tradition of comedy so i would say like like comedians are revered i mean they're revered everywhere but they're specifically revered in the philippines so um there's a in a show called bubble gang and um that unlike in canada i don't know in the u.s but like for variety shows so like it's i think those are bigger in in england too yeah variety shows always have some level of um uh, like they always have sketches in them right like so so i think yeah my my introduction to sketch comedy is actually through like the philippines um and i think that happens right like when you have like such a <laughs> sorry i always want to bring this back into like oppression <laughs> this is where my comedy comes from so like you know like people to survive a lot of people turn to comedy because it is a form of resistance right you're like mm-hmm. okay they can take away everything from us they can make our life real hard but we can you know like no one will take away our comedy and our ability to like poke fun at things that are unfair and I think that's sort of like you know um actually I read about this like so in the Philippines there's a souvenir that's called the barrel man I don't know if you've ever seen it but if you a lot of Filipino households it's like a it's like a souvenir that's um um, like the indigenous actually its roots come from like indigenous peoples like they say it was created during um Spanish colonization and the barrel man essentially is like (laughs) is a man who's naked and there's a barrel that you can remove and when you remove the barrel it's just like what pops up is his like is this is like very erect member (laughs) 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 so it was it's like one of the old like older instances of like comedy thinking but it was them poking fun at because like you know um what do you call it propriety and things like that like uh indigenous peoples in the philippines used to just walk around naked right and this barrel man it's kind of like in a way making a comment on like when you know eurocentric um eurocentric like uh values came came through like that that became like like bastos or rude you know rude so so philippines is always like Filipinos, like it's it's so in us to just be joking around, have sketch comedy. Um, a lot of like the celebrities um, that we enjoy are always like expected to be funny, funny and charming as well. Um, so yeah, so I, I think like yeah, I don't, I think I think that's that sketch comedy. And then obviously, like when I moved to Dubai, then you know the Monty Pythons, like definitely SNL like my family was very big on SNL for whatever reason so I got so like I mean and 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 like I moved to Toronto and Second City happens to be here so I already knew a lot about like so a lot of Second City Mm -hmm. folks become went to SNL and you know so so yeah yeah (laughs) it's so wild that like I I, I'm looking up this barrel man uh thing and it's so wild because like in my head like you know in in a more Western context, like the idea of a, of a person wearing a barrel, like my imagery is a poor person who's lost all of his clothes. So he has to wear a barrel to cover himself. Like where 
this is completely different. So like two different cultures having the a same imagery for two vastly different jokes too. Like yeah. That's so yeah. wild. Yeah, I mean context, right? Context is so important in comedy. Like I think that's that's sort of the danger of comedy and the beauty of it. Like you have to be really aware of um um where you're making a joke because it's going to mean something different for everyone. Um and uh it's funny. It's like a lot of that conversation about like you can't make like Seinfeld who is like easily one of the most revered like comedians um of our time especially in North America um is one of the people now who's like who's like oh you can't make jokes anymore and I'm like but the times have changed my friend like the way you've done comedy really was of its time but the times are different like life happened (laughs) since then so it's just gonna hit different and it's also so weird that he's the one that's saying that because I feel, for the most part, he's probably like one of the least offensive comedians of his generation. Like, he's not that, the one that necessarily would have that problem. Yeah. Like, so why are you bringing this up? Like, you're, it feels like Jerry Seinfeld was not the right vessel for that thought. Well, a lot of his jokes, though, were very, like, um, heteronormative, right? Sure, yeah. So I think that's, like, I think less so, like, he, he's definitely not Dave Chappelle and, like, the kind of discussions he's starting up, right? But a lot of his jokes are just, I, he, I think when you're so used to being the best, right? And then suddenly you're like, oh, your jokes aren't really hitting as hard anymore. I think, you know, I think that maybe be part of his query it's like what oh you just can't make these heteronormative like women are so this like like the the ball and chain like those kinds of jokes are just not like who cares about that anymore <laughs> that's yeah. not really top of mind and and it was at one point like it dominated the media not so long ago um but yeah like if you I mean, if you watch Seinfeld and I love Seinfeld like um uh a lot of it is about like his like girlfriends and how like weird they are yeah the the one weird trait that he can't get over like yeah the the perfect woman with this one flaw like (laughs) you know that kind of that uh revolving door of guest stars of that kind of nature yeah i think the last sitcom that really kind of pulled that off and towards the end they almost weren't pulling off is how i met your mother yeah like barney barney stinson (laughs) Um, you mentioned that your family was big on SNL, and I ask everybody because I'm always curious. Do you? Uh, I'm not. I'm, why do I say it that way? Because you have to answer it. I'm not going to say. Well, do you have a favorite SNL cast member? A hundred. Who is your favorite SNL cast member? Uh, who is my favorite SNL cast member? Oh man, oh that's so hard though. Like, okay, so my favorite talk, SNL. Let's talk it out. We can. We can do my it. My favorite SNL <laughs> sketch is the cowbell. Okay which is where um, Will Ferrell and I forget who is, I guess like his. Uh, okay. So the band is Will Ferrell. Yeah. Chris Kattan's in there. Yeah. I think Horatio's in there. Yes. Yes. Jimmy's in there. And I think, I think Chris Parnell's like the singer. Like yes. he's, he's in the front. And then Chris <laughs> Walken's the producer, I think. Yes. Chris Walken's like more cowbell. 
and it just gets so wild like that sketch really like for me is just so absurd so simple but if you really think about it there's a lot to think about it's such yeah it's it's one of those things that's such a height of stupidity yeah it's like Like, height of stupidity but also how like you know art is so subjective (laughs) right but also will ferrell with that cowbell like that's it there's something for everyone but like if you really dig down into that sketch it's like art is subjective some people like a cowbell some people don't and the people who have power (laughs) are the ones who are gonna get what they want it's like what they want is that's gonna come through you know it's deep another another snl sketch that i really love is uh uh, i mean like i think contemporary like maybe like a few years like kate mckinnon for a long time because she's oh so good and i just really love like how can she how she could she dips dips in and out of like gender binary right um that's really cool and her sketch with ryan gosling i think i think i just love like uh like a a good like break (laughs) when you break when they break in scene is just such a pleasure but that sketch where uh they get um uh, abducted by aliens and everyone has a beautiful i think it's cecily strong cecily strong and ryan gosling have a beautiful wonderful time and kate mckinnon's just like uh, they took me around back. <laughs> so that's the Californians is so good. Oh my gosh, just just Fred Armisen's like Californian accent is so so funny. But I think my favorite favorite sketch is uh, or character is Stefan. Stefan is a classic. It's interesting because like. In, in one of the sketch comedy classes I took a couple years ago at one of the theaters here in Philly, like, the instructor hated Stefan, like, and he and he considered it, like, you know, degrading to gay get people. Like, yeah. Yes, um, I can see that. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is just weirdo. Like, there's nothing, like, I, I, I didn't see it that way, and I don't know. I'm definitely not the the arbiter of of if that's true or not but like yeah this dude's just like a weirdo in a in in an hardy shirt yeah Yeah. well my favorite thing about okay i love the story of how stefan came together and i also won't deny that like for sure there's um like characteristics about stefan that like um um essentializes you know what i mean and Mm. kind of curricular is like the fact that like Stefan is based off of um uh, Bill Hader's like barista yeah something like and that so yeah obviously there's like complications with like <clears throat> and actually I don't know if Bill Hader is queer or you know rep- like you know if uh, a heterosexual man representing a queer person like there's definitely conversations there I think I really just love Stefan because um he said the most wild shit <laughs> like it's just so wild and his dynamic with um uh who's it was it that the seth myers time or yeah seth myers yeah yeah just wild i i love like the story of how stefan came together it's like that is he's based on a real person and um and the fact that like bill Hader didn't know what he was gonna say yeah where i think John Mulaney was like wrote it with him yeah and John would always change at least one of the lines or like one of the references 
I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it was based off of like someone who would email them <laughs> that wrote in that style, you know? So, so if we're talking about a cast member, like just like, you know, would you say more Kate? Would you go more Will Ferrell, Bill Hader? Like who would be your for the, me the it's, person? For me, it's Bill Hader. I love a I love a Bill Hader, but I also wonder if it's because I love Bill Hader. Or I love that he breaks so much. Like I just find <laughs> it so delightful, and he's just like such all of them. Though, like I think to be a really effective person on SNL, you have to be somewhat of a chameleon, and still have like kind of a character. Like a Bill Hader character is such a Bill Hader character, um, but like you know, I think he he accesses a lot of his characters through his voice and his voice is so malleable it's wild to me yeah, I, so. I always whenever someone says i'm not bill hater like i always point back and i always recommend the sketch and it's hard to find and i don't know why um on one of his first episodes it's him and Kristen wick and i believe they started together like roughly the same year uh but the sketch is al pacino checks his bank balance so it's Al Pacino calling a customer service rep at his bank, asking how much he has in his checking account. And it's like three minutes long. It's, again, height of stupidity, but it's so funny where he only has like $40 in a checking account. All right, how much do I have in my savings? You have $7.3 million. All right. Put $60 from the savings into the checking Like It's so, so good. stupid. It's so good. Uh, it's but so I, I I I want to say that was the introduction to either Bill Hader or or Kristen Wiig. It was the first time I saw one or the other, and I can't remember which. But yeah, it's he's great. Yeah. Um. All right. So, where do we start? Where do you decide to start writing, performing? What's that first step? Um. So. I actually started comedy. I, I started with improv. And the reason I I even like signed up for an improv class was um, I had this uh, fear of public speaking. And at the time I worked at um, a uh, like a like a coffee company whatever it doesn't matter <laughs> but the point was like there was a job within it that required like that I really wanted um and that person one of the things that person had to know how to do is like give presentations and lead mm -hmm. workshops and I was like that is the main thing that is holding me back so a friend of mine was I'm gonna do you know what Toastmasters is is that a coffee place or so toastmasters is like um like toastmasters international is like a public speaking or it's basically like a group that meets and there are many chapters around the world where oh. where, where the, the main goal is to improve your speech like to improve speech making speech giving and just try to like combat uh fear of public speaking so my options were toastmasters or improv so I was like, there's no way I'm going to do improv comedy. I'm not a comedian. So I went and checked out Toastmasters. So I audited a Toastmasters meetup. And oh my gosh, it was like, first of all, you have to write a full speech every time. It's already so much homework. And then when you <laughs> deliver that speech, there's someone who counts every time you go, um, 
mm, and I was like, that is so stressful. So that is the one and only Toastmasters meetup I ever went to. And I'm like, you know what? I heard improv, you just make shit up on the spot. So uh, that's where I went. <laughs> when I was in high school, my, uh, my, the, my senior year English teacher had a buzzer on his computer. So if we said, um, uh, or like, you know, as an audible pause. And yeah, like it was something that he successfully was able to beat out of me for like two years and now I'm a stammering idiot again like like sometimes people need those filler words to get to the thought that they need to like everyone's brains are different you know um I take a bit longer to get to my point and you know what that's fine (laughs) just promise you I have a point to make um yeah no that was just not attractive to me at all so I took one improv class and I really enjoyed it because it's just like a group of people coming together for an hour and a half or two hours and playing and just having fun and um I think prior to that my life was like I have to become the CEO before I was 30 like that was my main goal and that was my entire personality and then when I finally gave myself room to sort of play and like create I was like oh wait a minute maybe this is what I want to do so Mm. I took one class and I took the class after that and then and then a friend of mine was auditioning for the second city conservatory program at Toronto second city um and so I went with him to like support him and like I ended up getting it (laughs) (laughs) sorry friend thank you so much um and that just sort of like set me up set me off on a journey right like I I really enjoyed um you know like oh you could have an opinion and like help people understand it by making them laugh I'm into that and that's sort of like what I've been working on ever since I think that was like I don't know oh my gosh I don't know with the pandemic my concept for time is completely skewed yeah that was like 2017 so it's been a few years (laughs) um so you do all the improv classes at second city no I did it at a a theater company called bad dog theater and yeah 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 um so then okay and then you mentioned uh fusion fusion yeah so So where in the timeline does that come uh right after I actually like kind of right before I graduated from second city conservatory I got into fusion so there's a bit of an overlap there so tell me about fusion like how how do you find out about it how does it come together um yeah so like a pretty like a pretty established producer like a BIPOC producer in the community like um put out like an audition notice for an all POC cast and that really spoke to me because um uh at Second City Conservatory, like I was one of two um, POC in the cast. And it was like spending, like they were a lovely group of people, but it was a bit hard still. And I didn't I didn't really have the language or, or really understanding of, of the landscape of comedy and anti-oppression yet to understand why it was hard. I just knew that it was hard. And so when I saw that, I was like, okay, this is interesting. It, this is interesting. Um, so I just sort of went with my gut and, and basically Fusion had a, a fresh show every month, like a, new, a full 60 minute sketch review every month. So we rehearsed, wow. we rehearsed every Sunday and the, my biggest takeaways from Fusion is that 
comedy doesn't have to be competitive. Like I think comedy gets toxic sometimes because there's this feeling of, um, and more so in Canada, I hear than in the US, but I'm sure it's still there, right? Like you have to be the funniest. Um, if you want your sketches to get in, like you have to be kind of ruthless. You have, you know, like um, Fusion was lovely. Like we met every Sunday, everyone was so supportive and it was like, we'd have meals together. We would like hang out together. It felt like summer camp. <laughs> in real life it was just so nice and um that sort of set the bar for me of like the kinds of collaborators and the kinds of working conditions I need to have to to create comedy like wow like who would have thunk that maybe maybe you're more willing to make like vulnerable awesome risky comedy when you have like people that you trust and a safe space to do it (laughs) yeah I mean that (laughs) makes total sense to me like yeah the 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 idea of being able to take risks when you're fully supported like that yeah like it's yeah. great so uh how does uh tida come together yeah so i think that was like a that's kind of like an extension of that so i think um like in my journey in comedy i don't think i really understood um what it meant to have a point of view and explain it you know um second city taught me like okay this is a point of view um right so you, right the difference yeah the difference between a point of view and yeah. your point of view is it has to be drastic yeah yeah exactly right so so second city was really like this is a point of view let's find a point of view that's funny hmm. fusion taught me like your point of view is valid yeah right? and and fusion like um it was ultimately created for um like newer BIPOC folks and so I eventually like just graduated into um other things you know that's so I interesting think I, I, I like you saying it that way like I don't think we I don't think we have a system like that here in Philadelphia or even like that I mean that's something that we're a, a lot of the people in the community are like talking about is like and that ne- even not necessarily for like BIPOC just like a group for baby writers that are relatively new to get their feet, you know, under them and learn the process. Like, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, fusion was a very special thing. And like, even now it doesn't exist anymore because it takes a lot of love and I will give, we'll shout it out to the, to those producers who really, um, who really kept it, kept it together for a while Mm -hmm. um but for me as a performer I was like okay like I'm um a certain level of performance and I want to keep making stuff or in my case I want to keep digging down what my point of view actually is like what are the things that I care about and um at around the same time I started delving into theater more because sketch is theater right yeah and so I got involved with an with a Filipino theater company where I met these amazingly talented like women who like you know uh, members of the Tita Collective are like you know uh, have their bachelor's degree in jazz jazz vocals uh, ha- have done like years of training in musical theater um, and so. I started hanging out with them and they were just such a fun group and they're so funny, like just naturally funny. They didn't necessarily go through comedy, but because 
A, they're really funny. We all shared kind of like a similar background, not necessarily the same point of view, but if I shared a point of view, they'd be like, ah, I have a reference for that. Okay, yeah. Um, so we could just get into my point of view faster. And then as performers, so, you know, sketch, sketch comedians, I think are primarily writers. I have this conversation with people all the time because I don't understand, like there, there, there are certain cities where their sketch comedy seems, seems to be more performance-based and I don't get it because yeah. here in Philadelphia, we are all, all the performers are writers. Like yeah. we write our own material. So when there, when there are teams where like, oh yeah, we have a cast and we have a writer's room. I was like, I, I don't, yeah I don't understand. Like, I know that's how it works on TV, but at this level where we're in, you know, our little black boxes. Yeah. What? Like, yeah. Well, I mean, in Toronto, a lot of sketch comedians are like, writers first and like emerging performers yeah so now i had a group of women who were like extremely experienced performers but also writers but not necessarily comedy Mm. and so we had this wild idea of like why don't we try to do comedy together and that's how tita tita collective was born um and so i'm like really like really grateful because i i know how how much of a fluke that was, um, you know, to have a, a group of people that are so highly like skilled in their various like mediums or disciplines who get along. <laughs> that's yeah. the thing, right? That's the main, that's the secret sauce that get along that, that are able to communicate and sustain like a healthy group working, um, a healthy working relationship, but love love have this similar humor like we all would love kung pao like we all love the same (laughs) kind of humor right so so yeah so that's the tita collective and i would say for comedy we're still like for for tita collective i would say like our comedy could could still evolve and grow like as with everyone but like in terms of performing like i am the least like i'm the most green performer of the group they are all like you know, one of the members, just like one of the movie she's in, won eight Canadian Screen Awards, which is like the mo- the major Canadian award there is. Um, yeah, like they're no joke. <laughs> like I'm intimidated <laughs> by them <laughs> on a regular basis. So I know I'm really grateful to have that kind of sandbox. It's amazing. Um, I was curious because looking at... Um the the lineup for montreal sketch fest uh tita's doing two shows yeah and it feels like there's a difference between the two yes so what's the difference between a tita collective sketch review and tita jokes so tita jokes is our like award-winning show that we debuted in um at Toronto Fringe in 2019. Mm-hmm. And we were supposed to tour it in 2020, but we all know what happened there. So we are touring it now. So when we were invited back to Montreal Sketch Fest, um, the thing is like, we were gonna go to Montreal anyway. So we're like, why don't we just collaborate on this and do the full show as opposed to us just coming back after Sketch Fest some other time yeah. okay. <laughs> to do the show. like. Well, just we're gonna be there anyway. It's gonna cost us like less if we just do everything all Save at a once. Save trip, yeah. 
day of a trip and it's just like we love Montreal Sketch Fest so it was our first Sketch Fest and Montreal Sketch Fest was where we workshopped like Tita jokes like mm-hmm. the 30 minute version of Tita jokes we workshopped it um in 28 nine, 2019 right so so and it's uh it's like a lovely I love Montreal <laughs> I lived there for six years and any reason to go back and party with Sketchfest we'll do the the so the Sketchfest set is all brand new stuff okay so, so there's gonna okay so the one one set's gonna be brand new material the other one's gonna be this the show that you you all created a few years ago that you just haven't been able to yeah tour around ex- yet okay exactly so it's uh we're tentatively calling the new show uh welcome to the Titaverse. <laughs> <laughs> tentatively we like it so yeah so we're excited to try some new things out like we've all grown up like you know since we were such a new 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 sketch troupe when we were first at um uh at sketch fest montreal sketch fest and now we're coming back with having done you know a lot of a lot of sketch shows don't really get the runs that like theater shows do yeah right with with the exception of second city main stage productions right and which is unfortunate because like um because 90 percent of the tita collective are all theater so they're used to like doing the show over and over and over and over again and the benefit of that is like it just becomes better yeah i've made a joke with you know people in the past where like even your best sketches um you might only perform them like 10 times where if you're you know in theater and you're doing a run you're performing that show eight times a week for months or years or you know whatever like it's so bizarre that like on one hand and i understand it because uh with a lot of sketch teams here in the city like you don't want to see the same stuff if you me personally there are certain teams in philadelphia there's certain sketches of theirs i never need to see again but that's because i've seen it and but there's new people in the audience and i understand that like you know me, me being selfish versus the new people enjoying a good sketch but like yeah we we treat a lot of our material so disposably sometimes we're like oh we're only going to do it this amount of time and whatever we'll move on when you know th- there might be more of a life especially if you're traveling especially if if you're going to tour a show like to yeah. hold on to stuff I think all, and I'm speaking for the sketch communities that I'm familiar with, there's definitely more room to build capacity in terms of understanding what happens to your sketch after you've written it. Like, how do you, how do you create like a sustainable career out of this? I think right now, a lot of, especially in Toronto, like a lot of sketch comedians are, are, are creating sketch to become writers in tv shows yeah and that means like you're developing the ability to just like to 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 just continuously make jokes like make jokes make jokes make jokes so the tita collective we while yes obviously why not like we would want to make a living um in a writer's room but none of us are really interested in becoming like comedy writers in like different writers rooms like i don't want to necessarily be hired for a writer's room just to like right. drop in like for us um we actually created a mandate like 
we create shows and we write stories that specifically serve our community so that they can see themselves and like so that we can you know bring forward different topics that are hard to talk about cross-generationally so like you know stories that like coming out to your parents as a Filipino very very and as many like people like very hard to 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 broach you know and so so as jesters (laughs) right like we consider like jesters of our community like we bring up like prickly topics in in a accessible way and we we want to bring joy where there's there's a lot of hurt right like in very especially now with like Asian hate too right like that's makes it even heavier so it's our intentions right that have changed so it makes sense for us to bring this show around to different Filipino communities and to continuously like evolve it to make sure it fits um so yeah so I think it really depends I think most people in sketch just want like want to work for SNL and if you want to work for SNL you gotta like make new stuff all the time but like you and me talking about SNL sketches like people will go back to their favorite sketches like on YouTube yeah so there's still there is appetite for that um yeah I talked to like an artistic director of a theater company um once and she's like some of my favorite students (laughs) she shouldn't have favorites but she was like between you and me now I'm outing her um she's like we're comedians and improv because they're just more willing to to take the leap and take a risk you know and so it it allows for brave choices and there's really more room for comedians to create shows and tour them around I mean Second City has a monopoly on that and honestly there's so many teams out there that could really give Second City a run for their money you know so I don't know just take that money there's a lot of money (laughs) (laughs) tour (laughs) make a one person show, show and tour that that's like you know you just do it yeah it's heated jokes you wrote it roughly you know 2019 you're gonna tour it what's the experience of revisiting this material and re like putting it back up on its legs basically three years later after the world paused for 24 months or whatever it was oh thank you for asking that because we literally just did that all rehearsal yesterday the biggest thing is like I think the world needs things to happen quicker I think we're in the age of TikTok and reels and like extreme short form so even us when we revisited certain sketches we're like man this is long yeah so that was like the first thing it's like get to the point quickly um I think I think also we gave ourselves more room to be absurd um I think as younger comedians who at the time there were there was no TikTok um there weren't a lot of references about Tita's now there there's an abundance of it so so that actually that also pushes us to be like okay what points of views are com- what points of views in our show have been like revisited over and over and over again like how can we evolve that and like um add a add adds more value to bringing up the story like what are it's sort of like okay like so now we have representation how do we go beyond representation and even go deeper into that conversation um yeah and I think also like 
one of the things about the pandemic is like, who cares? Just do what you want anyway. The world is gonna suck. Like you think it's not gonna <laughs> suck, but it'll get worse. So have fun now. So we also just gave ourselves more like, you know what? At the end of the day, if this is not fun for us, yeah, what's the point? Yeah, what's the point? Because it's we're not making a million dollars out of this. <laughs> we're like. Yeah losing I, <laughs> I i am fully on board with that because in 2012 like a year or two into my like comedy run i i did a show it, everything stopped being fun so i was like all right peace yeah. I, i'll i'll see you guys when i when i'm ready like but yeah. i'm out of here yeah yeah so it's nice i think you know some points of views were like oh this i think we could we have grown as comedians and like having you know, experience such a wild thing <laughs> the last few years. Um, we're a little bit more discerning too, right? Of like what we're trying to say and like how precise, like I think people take for granted how precise comedy needs to be for it to be effective, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it's just like, oh man, like we were really muddy in what we were trying to say. So let's let's cut, 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 cut. This doesn't need to be a seven-page sketch. We could say the same thing in two pages. No, it does not need to be a seven-page sketch. Nothing ever needs to be Never. a seven-page sketch. <laughs> How dare you if you think it does? <laughs> and don't be wrong, I am a, an author of a sketch called Too Many Goats, which runs for seven pages. <laughs> and I, to this day, still think it needs to be said. I would, I, I like to cut the Bohemian Rhapsody of sketches and- you know what? It's in workshop, but I will once I unleash it into the world. You're welcome. There, there's certain rules I have about length. Like, uh, if a sketch is going long, there has to be a certain number of characters. Like, if, <laughs> yeah. if it's only two people on stage, three pages tops. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, if there's like a six people and they all are saying stuff, all right, maybe six or seven. May you know, like you know, but keep it like zippy and stuff. But yeah, yeah. um, I the same sketch teacher I was talking about earlier basically had a rule where he wouldn't read anything past page five. I was like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, and I, and I've kind of held on to that in my own personal, like if I, yeah. if I'm writing something and I'm getting close to the end of page five, I'm like, Oh, this needs Time to, to end. <laughs> Time to cut. Except, except too many goats. The premise of too many goats, um, you'll be surprised, is uh, there's too many goats. <laughs> and it's just this board, is this conference room of people trying to figure out different ways to deal with this problem. Um, there's a song and dance break in between. So I think, I think, you know, seven pages, at least have a song and dance break. Um, you might get away with it. <laughs> uh, you mentioned earlier um, about being, uh, was it the inclusion director at Bad Dog? Yes. For a while. Uh -huh. Tell me about that work. Oh my gosh. It's so hard. Oh my gosh. That work is tough. Um, I think it came at a time where, uh, um, I mean, Okay, so it came at the time when, like, when people will say things like, we're starting the conversation, right? <laughs> Five years later, people are still starting the conversation. But at the time, people were genuinely starting the conversation, and um, Bad Dog realized they needed, a, uh, they needed uh, to inject that expertise into their executive team immediately. Mm -hmm. So they hired someone, which is a very progressive decision um at the time uh we now know like really is we now know like it really you need to change the the power structure right 
but at the time it's basically being hired on as a consultant and what my main job then was to like review sort of how the that theater company and they also had a school too so I feel Mm -hmm. like a lot of my work had to deal with the school like so my main job was like let's look at accessibility let's look at who we're excluding and how can we change our practices so that it feels like a safer place um, to study and do comedy Um, one of my main things I think was the bringing in the check-in and the check-in essentially is like so it's so much more common and ubiquitous in theater um, but I think it, it happens a lot now it's just like the idea of empowering people to advocate for their needs when they need it so exactly like you know at the beginning of this podcast you were like hey if you need a, a water break if you need a if you need to go like a bio break, just we'll pause and go. That, that was the- bio break? Bio like, break, pee break. I like that. Bio break. I like that. <laughs> but like that kind of thing didn't really happen before, right? Like, you know, like it's such a simple thing. Like even the idea of like when you're in school, you had to ask for permission to go to the washroom and your teacher could very well say no. And that was normal. Yeah, so, yeah. Looking back at that as a thirty-something, that's wild. It's like, wild. It's wild, and it was still wild like a few years ago when I started. So, so implementing those kinds of changes, so like the atmosphere is a bit more relaxed, so it feels inclusive, and just giving and and under and it's an improv. It's an improv theater, so people are really like just putting stuff out there that's like been in ingrained in them since birth and we know there's that's a lot of stuff for everyone you know um uh, finding systems so people can be like time out time out without it being and it's still like a work in progress it's there's still so much work um yeah but i'm really proud of the work that we did there but again it was like the start of the conversation and we know like the conversation so much deeper than that and it's probably one of the toughest jobs I've ever had, um, but I'm grateful. Like the team at Bad Dogs really great. Um, yeah, but I, would I take that job again? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, because again, it's that thing. Like I don't want to. I think the main reason I took that job that I was attracted to it was because I was so tired of like, you know, the microaggressions that would happen when all I wanted to do was be funny. And so I was like, well, I guess if no one's going to do it, I'll have to make the space safe for me so that I can feel comfortable being funny. But now my solution to that was like, find five women that you really love and trust and just be funny together because it's so hard to take on a whole system, which is what an inclusion director was would, was like basically tasked to do. Mm. Yeah. And so uh, Tita's your big comedy outlet now, like, you're not sneaking off to do stand-up or anything else on your own or do you still Uh, do improv like um I don't do improv so much now though I am weirdly kind of craving it again um so I haven't done improv in a while I love like sketch is my first love and um I love doing it with the titas because it's just so awesome and fun and great I am working on, interestingly, like I never thought I would be interested in clown because um, I always had this like, oh, clown. I remember being working at a coffee shop with someone who was studying to be a clown and I literally judged him so hard. Mm. 
and I feel so mean out today. I was like, oh, clown, because <laughs> clown is so like, uh, it's kind of, it's like that intersection of theater and, and, and comedy, right? Which is like being super vulnerable and, and not having a plan and just going with the flow where the audience is. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is kind of what sketch comedians do, right? You know, you kind of like read the crowd and if you're, you have a sketch, but if something funnier happens, you're not going to ditch that. You're going to like milk it for what it is, right? I think that's like the best thing about live comedy. Um, I I think whenever people talk about like studying clown work and stuff, a lot of people that don't understand the history of, of clowning, you know, and that art form and the performance, you know, they have that one like aspect of like, you know, the circus clown. Yeah. And then I'll call, of course, all the creepy clowns and like it and all the other stuff that, you know, there's an actual phobia of clowns. Like there's an actual word for the fear of clowns. But yeah, like I, it's, it's probably an art that I probably would be interested to, to try out more on my own. But like, I'm just going to I'm just going to keep writing for myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like for me, I would be interested in in. Um learning it because like I said (laughs) very very intimidated by the women that I I I work with and the cool thing about being around people who are so highly trained in their disciplines is like it kind of gives you like a blueprint of what you need to do at least for me it did I'm like okay like I could study I could really study this craft more and it would make me a better comedian like ultimately Mm. this is all to feed you know my ability to like express a point of view in a really fun interesting way and for me like I'm always because my background I started in improv I could like a lot of clown is improv um mm-hmm. with like um and then you layer on just sort of this ability to connect with the crowd in a more deep way so yeah I don't know I haven't studied it yet so I'm probably <laughs> probably taking too much airtime trying to explain it but there's a there there's there's like it's in Manitoulin Island which I think is northern Ontario there's a there's a place called Clown Farm which is being run by like a very highly regarded uh a clown who's retired and just teaches and I'm like what a cool life story that would be Mm. do you know what I mean like hey I took two weeks off went to Clown Farm and studied clown from like one of the coolest clowns in Canada like, I just want that for my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It also sounds like the start of a horror movie too. So You're not wrong. You're not wrong. You know, when I said it, I'm like, uh. <laughs> I will give my life to comedy. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, what's something that you've, that you've learned from comedy that you'd pass on to a new writer? You need to really know what you care about and who you are to do comedy well, you know? And like some people will agree with you and some people will really understand you. But like, like for me, like if you write from like who you are, then you need to be like, it's so funny. Like I try to joke about things that I find funny, but the hardest thing for me to pin down is like, why do I find it funny? Mm -hmm. And it almost becomes like, damn, I need therapy because like a lot of us don't know why, how, how we tick. Like, I think we don't pay attention to ourselves and to our points of view, whether or not like 
we like or we like or resonate with something because a of a of like a of a past trauma or if it's because of like our background or if it's because our friends do that way like you know um take the time to sort out what your opinions actually are before trying to make fun of something because when someone like questions why you've made that joke it's going to be very clear to you like what you stand for yeah you know what i mean are you making fun of things like there's a lot of comedians like right now that are like like jerry seinfeld too like i right like just going back to that like why are you saying that is it because you're scared or it or do you actually believe that is that actually true i don't know that's the thing like when people say something say things that are really really um um, um i guess scandalous or or polarizing it's very funny to me that they are offended that people are offended right if you really understood what you're saying and your point of view and understand the context of that point of view say it but don't be surprised if people are offended yeah so yeah that's the thing I think we can dunk on Jerry Seinfeld, but at the same time, he's not losing his audience. He's they're just, fine. They're just, he's not getting a younger crowd in. Like, yeah. his, his audience is growing older with him. Yeah, I think like, it's just losing grip on power is a scary thing for people who have always had it. And it's a part of their identity. And you know what? Like, okay, so if that's where you're coming from, like, it'd be really funny for me if you were just a bit more self-aware, you know? That's the thing. I think as a co- comedian, like the worst thing you could do is lose touch because we have to be relatable. Like that is the biggest work of a comedian is like understanding the context of our jokes and how and the world around it, I think mm-hmm. is like, that is your responsibility. And so for these older comedians to be like, things aren't funny anymore. I'm like, you, you clearly have lost touch. And that's why you're not connecting with a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're giant syndication deal and your garage full of cars yeah you you clearly know what's going on with the common man like yeah and we all know like film and tv industry is like the most toxic industry out there you know (laughs) and it's so important that they that that covid barely touched it barely of all of them you know so they're operating at a different they're like operating at god level film and tv industry so you know I don't know. I just wanted to dunk on film and TV for some reason. <laughs> Live theater all the way, everyone. <laughs> and your YouTube channel. And your YouTube channel. <laughs> You'd mentioned uh, that Tita has like a mandate, basically. And it's, let me see if I can pull it back up because like it's on the website, basically. Like we yeah. aim to create art that engages, connects, and entertains community. The fact that you are in a group that has a written mandate. I do want to know why comedy for you? Like, why has comedy become such a huge part of your life now? Um, for me, hmm. I I think at the end of the day, like comedy has always been a way for me to understand the world I don't think I completely understood this as a child but looking back like that's really that's really how I express myself naturally um (laughs) as an anxious teenager like I'll make jokes before I say anything vulnerable (laughs) you know 
Um, and comedy specifically for Tita Collective and to serve its mandate, like I said, is it is like such an approachable way to, to talk about like really difficult, challenging things. That's one of the most important things. And the other thing that we have as a mandate is, um, is we want to write stories and present stories that nurture and unites community through joy and laughter, because we're kind of tired of like this trauma porn for a very long time. When you talk, when you hear about like stories from marginalized communities, yeah. it's always like, oh, my life is so hard. And they, it is so hard. But at the end of the day, it's like, like what I said about microaggressions, I already know this. So there is nothing in this story for me. Who is this trauma porn? Who is this for? I think we came to a realization like the community needs healing from its trauma and comedy is our, it's what we offer in service of that. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Thanks, Alia. Thanks so much, Josh. Alia and the rest of the Tita Collective are heading to Ottawa this weekend, April 29th and 30th, to perform their show Tita Jokes at Ottawa Fringe's Undercurrents Festival. Then, Tita Collective is heading to Montreal Sketchfest to perform new material on May 13th, and then the Tita Jokes show on May 15th. Then they're heading to Peterborough on May 20th to perform on the While We Can Comedy Tour with Anesti Donellis. Head to titacollective.com for information on all those shows. You can follow tita.collective on instagram and you can find them on facebook at facebook.com slash tita collective sketchy bader our sketch comedy open mic is heading back to zoom april 29th 10 p.m in the east more information at sketchybader.com my first sketch is a philly sketchfest production you can find out more information at phillysketchfest.com follow philly sketchfest on instagram at philly sketchfest the music on this episode is by the band no no which you can check out at nonoband.bandcamp.com. Like my first sketch on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Josh Hyam. Thanks for listening. Go see some comedy.